Welcome back, everyone. I'm Alex. Hey, I'm Ben. And this is Brian. And this is Pem Pem Pals. Uh, we just finished our coverage of the transformative Gainax series Furikuri, and we thought we might take a sort of lateral genre move and express our love for giant robots. So to accomplish this goal, after much deliberation, we decided to go back to a pinnacle point in the development of the giant robots that will someday rule the world. In this episode, we won't cover the show we've chosen yet, but instead we'll offer a little insight into what we have chosen and why we chose it and, and what we hope to get and give from our discussions in this arc of episodes, at least. So without further ado, uh, Brian, what significant series are we going to be covering? Uh, this series is Gundam The Origin, prequel to Mobile Suit Gundam. So you said lateral move to a show about giant robots. Haven't we just done two shows about giant robots? Maybe I need a better word there. This series in particular and Gundam as a whole, I think will provide a lot of insights to the ones we've just watched, especially uh, what we started with Neon Genesis. Because a lot of the tropes and the um, subject matter uh, that was so important or integral to the plot of Neon Genesis was started or subverted in Gundam. Mm. So, so it's not that the giant robots are new, but it's like a new angle that we're going to be looking at that. Yeah, exactly. Are Gundams giant robots? Like in the classic anime term? So, I, I, and I think we'll get to this, but there are two basic classifications of robot within anime, right? And, and they are fuzzy classifications, right? But there's uh, the super robot. Super and there's the real robot. Um, and the super robots, you're right, tend to be like Neon Genesis size, right? Like whole skyscraper, like uh, Godzilla-sized robots, sometimes even huger, right? In popular series like Gurren Lagann. But you're right, like a real robot tends to be smaller, maybe like, I don't know, 10 meters tall as opposed to, you know, 40 meters tall or 400 feet. And, and sorry, when you say real robot, like is that... Is that also like kind of like a specific term in this genre? Well, I guess Gundam, when it first came out, Mobile Suit Gundam 1979, it was the birth of this new classification. And it necessitated a genre distinction, or at least a subgenre distinction, between real robot and super robot. Because everything before this had kind of been super robot. And even Tamino, who, who's the creator of this, he each of his works kind of pushed towards this real robot concept. Maybe he was trying to work towards it, or maybe just uh, the themes he dealt with in his previous anime kind of lended themselves to expressing uh, kind of war stories in an animated format. Mm. But, but so there's kind of like shows about robots and they split into super robot and real robot or mm -hmm. yeah so there's that size distinction usually but there's also there not always obviously because you know different shows push on the edges of genre or like mix the two or try to knock down the walls between them uh in their own way like neon genesis did that a lot uh furikuri did that a lot there's usually a subject matter difference too. Super robot shows tend to be more like superhero stories. You know, like there's usually one protagonist, they have one giant robot. Sometimes they have a cast of like support characters, but that thing's gonna save the world. Um, whereas real robot, usually the conflict is 
usually on a much grander scale. Like this one is a war, right? So it's not just happening where the heroes are, it's happening all across uh, humanity. And again, the subject matter, like usually real robot stuff is more graphic. Like the deaths are more, mm. uh, and, and there's more of a focus on not just the violence, but the consequences of that violence. Maybe this is too much of a tangent, so feel free to cut this or whatever. But yeah, I'm, man, this is good. I'm, um, I'm thinking back to the beginning of Evangelion, and like when the angel shows up, there's all the like conventional warfare fires on it, and that shit like does like nothing to the angel, right? <laughs> and then it's like very clear, you know, the only thing we have is these like kind of like super robots. They're the only weapon that's actually effective. And I guess we have their rail gun. So there it <laughs> crosses a little bit, but would that be kind of a distinction that in like the real robot, it's just one of many weapons in this war, but like the other weapons are still effective against the robots versus them being kind of like in a class of their own. Uh, yeah, actually, that's really a prescient point to make or a question to ask because, like, the, there's even parts in the original Gundam series where it shows you, like, a mobile suit, a, a, a mech, right, a, a real robot or uh, can be very effective, but just one person in the right place with one bullet is actually more effective than these huge weapons are. That's interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, I've got a personal anecdote in terms of experiencing super robots versus real robots. Uh, so, I'm a Gen Xer, grew up in the 70s. A thing called Shogun Warriors uh, hit toy stores back in 1979. Hmm. And that was kind of my introduction to, you know, Star Avengers, Mazinger Z, Guy King, all that super robot stuff. And that was really fun and exciting. And then... Uh, What's funny, though, is like 79 is when Mobile Suit Gundam came out, right? <laughs> but that didn't jump the pond. It didn't hit American markets. So, you know, I grew up with these giant robot toys, and I just thought, well, that's, that's what's going on in Japan. And uh, then I visited uh, some cousins in Japan in 1983, and this is like enough time for the real robot genre to like have really caught on. Uh, so I got in front of the TV with my cousins and we started watching some anime and none of it was super robot. <laughs> it was all this real robot stuff. It was Votums. It was Aura Battler, Dunbine. Also a Tomino series. Yeah. And I can't remember which one of you mentioned it, but like Votums specifically, these things are just a little bit larger than tanks and it's just this standard issue hardware, right? Like the actual machine itself uh, has really nothing to do with the, the story or anybody's character development whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So it was shocking, but also exciting. I mean, Macross was already a thing at that point. SDF-1? <laughs> yeah. Super Dimension Fortress Macross. Yeah. Also known as Robotech here in the States. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I think that's something that's always confused me as Robotech Macross thing. And, and that's a separate world from Gundam? Or? Yes. Okay. Um, very similar themes that it touches on. Uh, uh, Macross, like Gundam, focuses on a lot of the consequences of the violence as opposed to just the, the glorified super robot saving the day, you know? And like, mm. once they're done defeating the giant monster or the other giant robot, like the episode's kind of over. But Macross and Gundam, uh, especially at the time, were known for... Uh, that's not the end of the episode. And it's definitely not the end of the story. It's one overarching story as opposed to the more episodic feel, uh, monster of the week feel of the previous shows. And, and you just see, you know, more people die or more people, uh, 
before like a, a super robot or a, a monster would just explode. But now we're seeing some shots where like a mech goes down. But before we see it explode from the outside, we see the pilot in the cockpit and we see what happens to them. I mean, as a kid, I don't know, you might gloss over that and just be really excited by the animation and the toys and your favorite character triumphing. But as an adult looking back, I'm like, oh, they're trying to say something. Like Tomino is really trying to change the conversation around this kind of entertainment. Hmm. Macross was also a product of Studio New, which uh, was populated by a lot of former Sunrise staff. Mm. Uh, Sunrise being the studio that produced Mobile Suit Gundam. Oh my God, that's brilliant. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we had some great questions here outlined by Brian. Um, and so we're going to go through them. We touched a little bit, but we're going to go through each of the questions and hopefully that will give us some more insight to why we wanted to cover this and why I think it is really important to cover this. So why is Gundam significant? My answer is anecdotal again. So even though I discovered Real Robot in 1983, I didn't actually discover Gundam until last year. I don't know why this was a thing. I know I've met other people that have been like this, but it seemed like there were Macross people and Gundam people. And I was a diehard Macross person. So I just refused to watch anything Gundam. And it's so stupid. <laughs> like, why did I have that conviction? Because it's an amazing <laughs> show. And I think last year I just felt like out of guilt, I needed to watch some Gundam because like, oh, this is the most popular like mech anime ever. You know, I need to have this under my belt. And I think I watched, I started with Gundam The Origin and I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> this is super <laughs> amazing. And what an idiot I've been. Like I lost out. But I'll just say like what struck me as significant was there wasn't this good guy, bad guy thing. Uh, that I was used to seeing with like super robot stuff or even a lot of the more popular real robot stuff. And it finishing Gundam. Oh God, is this going to be a spoiler? <laughs> um, we can edit it and cut it, it out. Okay. Finish your story. I, I, I'm, I'm going to put my fingers in my ears. <laughs> <laughs> I was just left with this impression that war was the bad guy. Like war was the enemy. Mm -hmm. There were good and bad people on this side, good and bad people on that side. And everyone was losing against this other foe. And I, after finishing the series, I sat back and was like, wow, that is a great message. And I'm in a hundred percent. Like, I want to see what else Tomino or his crew are, are, have to say about this. And that was the start of a, a really cool ride. That's awesome. Uh, just like you, I had thought, and my brother who's been on the show a couple of times, um, we had also thought that there were Macross people and there were, or Robotech people and there were Gundam people. And I liked Gundam aesthetically when I was a lot younger mm -hmm. because I just liked the mech design. Oh yeah, I did I did a bunch of those models. Yeah, even if you didn't watch the show, if you were into anime, it was kind of impossible not to know about, what are they called now, Gunpla? Gunpla? Yeah. Oh, okay. And you're right, like how wrong I was. And I didn't really get into it until much later in life, I saw the 8th MS team. <laughs> And it treated both sides of this conflict kind of equally, you know, looking at the Xeon forces and saying, oh, they're the bad guys. It wasn't that simple anymore. But little did I know, that's been the case the whole time with mm -hmm. Tamino's work. 
And there are other Gundam series, right, that take place in a different timeline, a different universe. And they're only aesthetically similar to the main Gundam timeline, which is known as Universal Century. It was a time when humanity set out into space in search of new lands, and they gave that time the name Universal Century. Humanity entrusted their future to gigantic space colonies that had been constructed around the Earth. However, this second homeland was a far cry from the paradise that they had been promised. And those shows tend to be more like super robot shows. They tend to be more heroic. They tend to be more good guys versus bad guys, not as much nuance and all about the action sequences. And so it's easy to get lost because I think those alternate timelines outnumber the Universal Century series at this point. Oh, yeah, definitely. Can I just jump in there for a second? And so I've never seen this show before. And, you know, I don't think if I had just seen recommendations online or something, I think I still would have like skipped over it. You know, it's not really my bag. But I think I am excited about it now just because I know you guys and trust you guys. And so seeing that this is a show that you guys are really into, um, I think is making me really curious to to watch it now. And I'm uh, pretty excited. So I think I watched a little bit of Gundam Wing when that was like on that tsunami block that's come up a couple of times. <laughs> as one of the places you could find anime on TV in the US. And I remember liking it at the time, but I remember almost nothing about it. Mm-hmm. I guess there's the last thing I'll say about like going into Gundam for the first time. Maybe it was just timely for me. Um, I guess the last few years, a lot of my ideology has been changing, specifically about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I was raised my whole life thinking like the United States, they're always the good guys in everything. And uh, well, it's more complicated than that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe that's part of why it just really resonated with me. Maybe I had this like guilty conviction about certain things and uh, it spoke to me on that level. Man, you guys are so awesome. And yes, please <laughs> like jump in and cut me off because I'm just so excited. I'm going to blow through things. <laughs> so a little bit about Tamino. Uh, he was born in 1941 during World War II. Wow. So he grew up in post-war Japan. He wrote the script and storyboards for the first anime adaptation. Uh, which was Astro Boy, 1963. Wow. 22 years old, right? So he's kind of this prodigy. And as he grows up, so too does the genre, right? His directorial debut didn't come till 10 years later. In 1973, the series called Triton of the Sea. which is kind of similar in setup to like an Aquaman story. There is this like ruler of an undersea people, but there's a rival undersea people. And uh, the story kind of comes out of the conflict between those two. um, So I guess two like underwater nations. And it is revealed throughout the story that 
it's not just them that exist. The the upper, our world, the surface world already exists. And that's actually a much more prevalent existential threat to them than they are to each other. So it's got a much more dark and focused plot line than like similar Aquaman stories that were actually being animated around the same time in America. Hmm. So then he moved on to his first super robot series called Brave Riding. <laughs> Uh, which I've never seen, but I knew. I was like, "Oh, I've I know that. I've I've played video games that have little chibi versions of that in there." <laughs> that has a pretty standard super robot setup. I think it is the first time in a super robot where the origins of the robot itself are very mysterious. Other popular shows like Mazinger Z, we know at least where the robot comes from. Like one scientist creates it for his son to pilot, right? Whereas in Brave Riding, it's this ancient thing that comes out of a pyramid. And you're like, oh, how long has that been there? Yeah, Brave Riding was one of the super robots in the Marvel comic book, Shogun Warriors. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, it was a weird trio. Brave Riding, Combatter of V, and Dan Cougar, I think. It was a weird collection. Why did they choose that? <laughs> yeah, Brave Rydine was also the first transforming robot toy I ever had. <gasps> oh, yeah, because yeah, it turned into, into a... like a god bird form, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's another funny thing about it is all of its weapons and all of its like different modes or attacks, they're all god something. God breaker, god lightning, god arrow. Yeah. Two years later, in 1977, Tomino directs another show called Zambot 3. Which is a super robot series that this time, like he really moves along in his storytelling. Like he step by step kind of goes deeper into these stories and pulls like the real world and the fiction world kind of closer together. So in this one, he examines the question, which has not been really uh, brought up before in these super robot series of why children are often the pilots, right? And we'll see echoes of that question all the way up into the modern age, right? Like Neon Genesis, that's a huge theme in the show. Why are they kids? And we know like real world, it started them being kids because they wanted the audience to identify and they wanted the audience to have a power fantasy. It was mostly young males, right? And they wanted them to want the toy. But in Zambot 3, at least, Tomino is trying to make a diegetic explanation for why they are uh, the pilots. I think this marks a synthesis point for Tomino and the genre as a whole, because while technically still a super robot work, Zambot 3 combines the visceral and consequential uh, violence of Triton of the Sea with the tropes of the mecha genre mm. to start telling this new story. To not just have this power fantasy, but to have it relate to our lives and the problems we have in the real world. And then two years later, 1979, while we still didn't have Ronald Reagan in the office, uh, what a blissful babe time we had. That's when Mobile Suit Gundam, the original series, comes out. And that's the split point where the real robot genre is born, not only because it is trying to tell an anti-war war story, 
with these smaller mechs, uh, more mass produced, more wide conflict, but also because they try to treat them like real military technology mm. with explanations of why they work, how they work, what technologies are necessary to make them function and why those technologies are dangerous. Sorry if this is off topic, but where does um, Space Runaway Edeon come in? After this. Okay. Space Runaway Edeon is almost, I mean, I haven't seen all of it, but from the concepts of it, it's almost a direct response to the way Sunrise and the industry at a whole received Gundam. Because the the audience may have received it in the way that Tamino intended as this anti-war story, but the company used Gundam as the perfect excuse to make toy after toy after toy after toy because of all the different mech designs uh, that would naturally come out of animating the Gundam series. So I don't know if I have this right. My understanding was that when Mobile Suit Gundam first aired, it was not well received. Oh, I don't know. It makes sense. It's real. It's real dark. Yeah. I don't have the reference here, but I read something that... Uh, They had to rush and wrap the ending sooner than they wanted, and that it wasn't until there was airing of the reruns that it caught big. Reruns being like airing later, probably to a more mature audience, I I would assume. Oh, huh. Kind of like Family Guy in America. Not the same kind of subject matter, but same thing. Like It didn't get its cult following until it was canceled, and the DVDs and uh, second runs came out. Wow, that's interesting. I'm also wondering, too, hearing this, if one of the kind of real robot versus super robot things is like hard sci-fi versus like soft sci-fi. So like hard sci-fi, you have kind of like uh, make it plausible somehow in science and give the explanations Mm. for everything versus soft sci-fi is often more like, you know, the technology is almost magic and you kind of use it as a plot device for doing almost anything. Yeah, actually, I think it's there's a lot of analogs there. Yeah, I would say that the novelization that Tomino did is absolutely hard sci-fi. Like it does, it goes beyond just like techno thriller details, right? It's like when the red alert first goes off and the whole ship is panicking. There's these grips to get th- people through corridors in zero G, and one guy's just so freaking adrenalized he lets go too soon and he smashes his face against the end of the corridor. <laughs> Uh, it kind of reminded me of things that happen in real life, you know, like Black Hawk Down, like not just the movie, but like the real incident in Mogadishu. Mm-hmm. Soldiers getting too adrenalized and missing the rope, jumping out of the helicopter. It's just jam-packed with all kinds of stuff like that. So I think, Alex, you you had brought us all the way up to kind of the the beginnings of Gundam, right? Mobile Suit Gundam. Mm-hmm. So where, where is this series that we're going to be watching um, and, you know, feel free to keep going if you're going to get there soon. But where does this series fall within Gundam then? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we have a great question up here. So uh, why are we starting with this series and or where where is it in that timeline? So, again, we're we're going to be dealing only with and. Don't worry, listeners. I think we're only going to cover this series. We're not going to go through all of Universal Century. But uh, the origin, it's actually one of the last works to be released, like created. But chronologically, it is the first series. So it it would be the events that lead up to the original series. So it's a true prequel. And as for why are we starting with the origin, I think, and I think we agree on this, like seeing as we kind of live in the future, 
uh, we have this unique vantage point for viewing Gundam. Like other people either had to come in at Mobile Suit Gundam proper, the original series, or they would have to start wherever they had access to, especially before all this streaming technology. You know, like I didn't really get into it until I saw 8th MS Team. That's like a side story that has very little bearing on the rest of the thing. And there are plenty of people who got in on it first in like War in the Pocket, which is another like tiny little thing that's fantastic but it has very little bearing on the historical events that shape the gundam timeline the universal century so the main original series mobile suit gundam from 79 Mm -hmm. uh it starts at this point in this conflict where the rx-78 mark ii like the face of the gundam franchise first enters the picture i don't know it kind of reminds me of like a new hope you know star wars like, why are we starting? Well, that's when Luke Skywalker and Han Solo get together. And mm-hmm. But there's a really interesting story leading up to the, these events, like before the activation of RX-78 Mark II. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we even have, like at this point, we have, there's a conclusion to Tamino's original story arc concept in Char's Counterattack. And it has a really great climax in the fabulously titled Gundam Unicorn. Mm. And I don't know about you guys, I've been burnt by cash grab prequels before on some series and I'm like, oh, why did you make this? Oh, it's to make money. It's not to tell a story. Cool. But this series actually pretty cleverly subverts that expectation. I'm sure there were toys and merchandise that came out with its release, but instead of it focusing on that uh, titular RX-78 Mark II Gundam, this actually deals with the development of mobile suits as a technology. Um, So mechs themselves. So at least at the beginning of this the show, there's no such thing as a mobile suit. There's no such thing as a mech. There mm. are things that are like them and technologies that will lead to their development. But like the, the subtitle says, the origin, that's what it is. Um, so it's kind of why are these things important? Why do they change the face of warfare? You know, and there are fascinating points in uh, uh, analogs to draw between World War One, um, where like planes with guns on them, they changed everything about warfare because suddenly mm. you could have aerial reconnaissance, but along with aerial reconnaissance came aerial combat. And so that kind of supremacy or uh, aerial supremacy became a driving factor in World War One, And we'll see in this series that warfare had developed to a very specific point with like big, huge battleships in space. And with a, the development of a mobile suit, this relatively small, oh, that's funny. So they are very small in comparison to their predecessor super robots, but they're also very small in comparison to their predecessor battleships diegetically. Mm. And you'd think like, oh, a smaller war machine, that's just going to get knocked out of space or knocked out of the sky. But it's a completely different ball game now. Oh, man, I can't wait to watch this first episode because it's <laughs> right into it. Yeah, it does. It hits the ground running. And I think the series also agrees with the work we've already covered. Uh, There are spectacularly choreographed action scenes. And just like FLCL, it is a complete embrace of the new technology. Because the action scenes, which used to be, 
you know, wonderful hand-drawn painstaking labor. It's now all of the mech scenes are completely computer generated. Um, They've given over to that technology, but in doing so, they do some really great work. It's, It's breathtaking and it's also horrifying because you get to see these mechs like fly around and shoot a battleship, but you also get to see the people inside of the battleship. What happens right before it blows? You're like, oh, I feel really bad. Uh, yeah, so the combat's really visceral and engaging, but it shows the human cost on the other side of like every bullet fired. And the origin is an excellent title. So I just have one more thing to contribute about why Gundam is significant in anime before we get too far off. I also feel like uh, Mobile Suit Gundam contributed this existential concept to anime storytelling. We don't need to get into the specifics, but there's this concept called the new types uh, that comes out in this show. And then I look at this idea being introduced, and then I look at Neon Genesis Evangelion with this concept of instrumentality. And I'm like, oh, there's this existential empathic thing that's there that is super, I don't know, disruptive. I don't know if that's the right word. That sounds negative, but significant, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it definitely disrupts the status quo of the universe that it exists in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it marks a possibility for a transcendent new age of humanity. Okay. Oh, is there a reason why mechs as a cultural phenomenon are disposable at when like their Western counterparts say like superheroes or action stars are not? I would suspect it's a cultural thing. Uh, individualism versus collectivism. Uh, this is just me flying off the seat of my pants here. Go for it. Yeah, so like Western heroes, uh, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, whatever, it's the Lone Ranger archetype, right? This powerful, either chosen or gifted individual that's righting wrongs. But in Japan, like, you know, it's just such a different culture. It's like community over individual. And then you see it a bit in like the super robot genre, like a super robot just isn't its own thing by itself. There's always like the command center crew. Mm -hmm. Most of the super robots are an actual crew of individuals themselves filing different parts. Like Mazinger Z would be the exception. That's one of the earliest ones, but like get a robo. Voltron. Yeah. Volts V, Combatera V, Dan Cougar, on and on. It's a crew and it's not just a crew piloting the robot. It's also the command crew. And there's also like the hangar crew. They're always a big part of this. It just seems so Japanese. (laughs) That's just how it seemed to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, in my view, kind of going along with that. uh, So mechs, I think, serve as a buffer in the imagination for the violence we're witnessing on screen. Mm. So when a human body, especially a protagonist, is harmed or even uh, killed, destroyed, there's an empathic effect on the audience, right? Like that's a hardwired biological thing for if not all people, then the vast majority of people. But when a mechanized body is decapitated or explodes or is vaporized, we accept it more easily because it's not human technically, right? We see it as entertainment, not depiction or commentary. Uh, We can just look at superhero blockbusters in America the MCU that's been going on for the last 20 years, the evil minions have to be robots or monsters or hyper-aggressive or somehow corrupted in some way. They have to Mm. be less than human so that when they get 
slaughtered by the good guys, we don't bat an eye. We just cheer for the good guys, right? Hmm. Uh, so Mobile Suit Gundam extends this disposability that was previously the realm of the bad guys, right? It extends it to the, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, hold on. I'm on pins and needles here, man. Okay. <laughs> There's usually no effort towards humanizing those nameless antagonists, right? Mm. Their, their purpose is to be slaughtered on screen. They're almost like sacrificial uh, entities. Mobile Suit Gundam extends this disposability uh, of previous bad guy robots who exist only to be triumphed over by the protagonist and their super robot to the Federation as well. Uh, if we were going from Metal or uh, Metal Gear Solid, ha, huh? Snake, Snake, um, Mobile Suit Gundam, we would initially identify with the Federation forces. Yes. We would say those are the good guys because one, we're spending the most time with them. We're, they're mostly our lens and look at their robot. It looks like an American. It's red, white, and blue. It has kind of this uh, samurai aspect to it. So it's engaging both to a Japanese audience and an American audience. So we think, oh, those are the good guys. Like, we shouldn't be happy when they die. We shouldn't. But like, they're all the same. They're just soldiers in a war. And at first we see the Federation forces protecting civilians and trying to stop this like tide of Xeon violence that's sweeping over the Earth sphere. But it's slowly revealed that that's kind of a convenient illusion. Like even the initial events of Gundam, the colony that it starts on where our hero, Amuro Ray, finds his Gundam, the only reason that that colony is in danger is because the Federation chose to develop its mobile suit there. Mm. They could have developed it on Earth, keeping space uh, colony residents safe, but they don't care about space colony residents as much as they care about Earth residents. Mm -hmm. Like the supposed good guys are already like putting people at risk based on, you know, thinking that they're better than <laughs> space noids. Are the, this is the initial events that we're going to see in the, the series that we're watching or I, I always get confused <laughs> about like what the original and what's the... Oh, that's true. So no, those are those are the yeah, those are the original series from 1979. This brings us into a, a big point. Uh, I know Brian has a lot to say about, so let's do that. So in the original series and through most of the series, we spend the majority of our time with Federation forces, and so the Zeon, who we will actually be spending most of our time in this series, they're the de facto bad guys, like so much so that. I think less discerning fans and very outspoken fans of the series have identified them as space Nazis. Mm. And I don't think that that moniker works at all. Like not as a Nazis are bad and these guys are bad. So they're Nazis. Not like that. Like, like they're not fascist. They're not, they're not these things that Nazis were. Mm -hmm. They're actually something preceding Nazism. Um, but I don't want to step on your toes too much, Brian. I know you wrote a lot of awesome stuff about this. Yeah. So like a first time viewer of Gundam, they're going to look at the Xeon and have this conclusion. They're like, oh, the Xeon, they're space Nazis. Uh, and this is just based on costuming and aesthetics. And um, for one of our guests that are going to be joining us, I also referred him to watching the first episode of Gundam Origin. And 
he immediately texted me with the same question. He was like, hey, what the hell is this? You're having me watch. Who are these Nazi motherfuckers? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, hold on, hold on. Um, so just to address the aesthetics, since this is an audio podcast, not video, the Federation have a look that's an amalgam of like British uniforms and U.S. uniforms from World War II and earlier. Uh, the Xeon uniforms are an amalgam of uh, Russian Imperial Army and like World War One German uniforms. Mm -hmm. The issue is there's a faction within Xeon that have a flag that is based on some Nazi uh, naval flag. Hmm. It's red with white and black bands through the middle and the symbol in the center. Kreisch, Mission, Schmesh, or whatever it is. So instead of the swastika in the middle, it's um, one of the one of the Zeon factions mm -hmm. is their symbol. Um, but but, but it's imagery that, like, yeah. to our minds, kind of like evokes like nazi imagery or something like that yeah, yeah and i think that's a problem with especially american education because i don't know about you guys i was taught a lot about world war ii i was taught almost nothing about world war one mm -hmm. so all of these symbols and traditions that would become what happened in world war ii i would always see them as world war ii uh symbols as opposed to seeing them as what it came from on that um the Zeon have an ace pilot in World War One, this was the Red Baron. Uh, so in our show, it's the Red Comet. Mm -hmm. Then in terms of the leadership, there is uh, someone who rises to power within the Xeon camp who is a psychopath. Uh, so the immediate idea that comes to mind is Hitler. And someone even makes a comment about like, ah, oh, you're like a freaking Hitler dude. Mm -hmm. As Alex mentioned, like that's only having to do with this murderous disposition that this one character has not anything having to do with nationalism or fascism or racism but um i, don't know, I feel like this does get into a bit of like being historically literate um the founder of the movement uh zionzum daikun uh he's this philosopher prophet type character and to me he feels very like a marx type character and mm -hmm. unfortunately he gets taken out before he's able to communicate his grand vision and then this more militarized group sort of takes over the movement, right? So that seems very familiar to me, not just in like Germany or Russia, but in many different countries, I feel like that's a, a thing that happens. So I don't think that's a, a specifically Nazi kind of thing. All right, <laughs> I, I'm gonna get on a little bit of a soapbox here. Um, I, I've mentioned this already, but I'm, I'm pretty deep in a lot of fandom communities and whatever community it might be, whether it's Gundam or something is Silly is the My Little Pony fandom, which I'm a part of as well. I'm a brony. You're a brony? I'm oh a brony, gosh. and I'm, I'm outing myself right here and now. <laughs> um, there's just these weird, like, Nazi voices that come up and take a certain character or some aspect of the show, like, oh, see, the creators are secretly Nazis or alt-right or whatever, and they're, like, sending us these coded messages, like, yeah, be ready. Like, we're on your side. I'm like, what? Oh, so like specifically with Gundam, I also play one of the popular Gundam games, uh, Gundam Battle Ops 2. And then every once in a while you get online and there's somebody piloting these Xeon mechs and spamming all this shit, Sieg Heil and Standby or whatever the thing was that Some bullshit. It was said. Um, are, are you talking about the Trump stand down and stand by or whatever? Yes, or, yes. Yeah, okay. uh, I actually quit playing the game last year because it just got so pervasive and 
intolerable. And I, I would always speak out against it um, anytime I could, because I just enjoyed doing that and making the case like, okay, no, these Xeon that you have such a boner for, they're not Nazis. Like number one, they're, they're not fascist. Like it doesn't translate correctly if you haven't seen the show, maybe it won't make much sense, but like the sovereign of Xeon, uh, this guy, Degwin, uh, he's just a puppet. He's not like this fascist leader with absolute power. It's not what we see in Germany. It's more like what we see in like feudal Japan. Like there's an emperor, but he doesn't have the power. It's the daimyos or the, uh, the shogun, or in the case of World War II, it's the generals. Like they're the ones that have the power. So it's, it's a military dictatorship. It's not fascism. And then the claim about, oh, well, the, the Zeon, they're, they're good nationalists. No, <laughs> the, the colony didn't exist. It's only like a couple generations old. Yeah, there's no golden age of Munzo, which is what the colony originally was, to look back on and like reclaim. This is getting off on such a tangent. Let's just let that go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to it in this season, probably. Yeah, yeah. But, and Once. then like the other point is like the master race aspect of it, the racism. Uh, the the Zeon campaign, even the one taken over by the military factions, is not a racial campaign. It's it's a class warfare thing. Yeah, and 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 what are the two classes that we're talking about here? So it gets used pretty freely. Um, the Earthnoids and the Spacenoids, which it starts out that these are supposed to be derogatory terms, but they just eventually get accepted. <laughs> but it's um, the privileged who are on Earth and. Fun fact, if anyone on Earth is speaking out against the Federation, they get deported to one of the colonies. And then everyone on the colonies are called the Spacenoids, and these are second-class citizens that don't have equal rights, don't have equal representation, and their whole purpose is to work in, like, mine asteroids and stuff to serve the people on this planet that maybe they've never even seen before, but they certainly won't benefit from. Mm. I, uh, I just finished binge watching The Expanse on Amazon Prime, which is mm-hmm. uh, a great series. I, I really recommend it to all of our listeners and to you guys. But that has a very similar theme, which now I, I wonder if they stole from this or, or something like that. So there is three factions. There's kind of like Earth, Mars, and the space people. And, and kind of one of the interesting things is that like if you're born in space, then your body develops in this way that you're not accustomed to gravity. So if you like visit a planet that has G like earth, like you can't really survive. You have to like take these drugs and some people's bodies can adapt, but other people are kind of relegated to be permanently space people. And then the, the Martians it's lower gravity. So they're, they're somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Mm. So I just want to put my last nail in the coffin of this, like the Xeon or space Nazis argument so Zeon, the person that the Republic is named after, uh, Zeon Zundaikun, his vision, uh, like it doesn't get to be revealed in the Gundam Origins show. It comes much later, specifically in the novelization of Mobile Suit Gundam by Tamino. The full speech that uh, Daikun was going to deliver is printed out. It's like three pages. Hmm. And it's actually a really beautiful uh, concept. You know, he's, We should read that at the end. <laughs> But he's, he's talking about um, human evolution and like the early days of man being egocentric and just about themselves and then starting to do like build tribes and then eventually nations and becoming ethnocentric. They're starting to civilize. And then even though the Federation took a dark turn, uh, there was this idea of being geocentric, a united people. Uh, then it goes beyond that to colonizing space. 
And then this is where his vision of the new type comes in, like the next evolution of humanity, where they are growing beyond their environment, right? Not just expanding out into space, but expanding as in terms of who they are, what is humanity? And he's talking about an evolution of consciousness. And he's envisioning being able to develop this empathic bond so they can feel what the other person is feeling. And it eliminates the need for these regulatory things like governments and police forces. And his final vision of liberation isn't the liberation of one colony of Xeon. It's the liberation of every individual human, Earth and in space. And, you know, two seasons ago, I was kind of on the fence about instrumentality, but I saw something promising within it. And then when I read this speech, I was like, wow, man, that's really beautiful. And no wonder, like, these other military factions got pissed off about that. Like, they've got no use for that. They just wanted their own little mini federation. God, I'm emotionally attached to this story. <laughs> it makes me sad. It makes me bummed out. Because I feel like maybe that's, that's our situation, too. Like, maybe we can have some new visionary that might have a message that could do something really positive for us to increase everyone's like class consciousness or something. Mm -hmm. But it just sucks the idea that like a militantly minded group can take over any kind of movement that might be positive for all of us. Yeah. And, and there's a analog between what we're going to look at and World War One. You know, World War One had a bunch of different nation states vying for dominance, but uh, a lot of the lead up to World War One was in opposition to popular labor movements. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why countries got in or the aristocracy of different countries got them involved in the war in these conflicts was to send workers off to war. Because if they were off being soldiers fighting and you could, you know, make it the law that they had, you could conscript them, then they couldn't be back home organizing. And it would destroy the uh, popular support for labor movements in the area. And, and it worked in World War One. Um, so similarly, this this new type phenomenon, which Zeon Zoom Daikun, he kind of just uh, prophesies it, right? Like mm -hmm. he doesn't see examples of it yet, but he kind of logically formulates. He's like, this has to happen because yeah. we're in a new environment. Humans will have to change. And this is how I think they will change. He has this vision for a, a, a unified humanity, but through military conflict, just like you said, it gets subverted. Yeah. You, you guys have mentioned this concept of a new type a couple of times, but I, I don't know what it is you're uh, referring to. Yeah, so, I mean, this is Zeon Daikun's theoretical vision that the next generation born in space are going to start producing individuals called new types, the new type of person. And maybe this is part of where, like, the Nazi thing gets confused because... Like that was one of Hitler's things, right? Like the Ubermensch, like yeah. the Superman. Well, th this is not that at all. Like in Tycoon's vision of a new type, it makes things like nationalism and race and fascism like obsolete. Like you don't need like an authoritarian leader. Like race doesn't matter if you've got this spiritual empathic bond, like your consciousness has evolved beyond these physical things. Um, but it's it's some kind of like it's the next step of human evolution. Is that yeah. the idea? Yeah. yeah. The the closest analog I found to it in Western popular media is a mutant from the X Men series, mm. because mutants one 
there's a genetic component to it or whatever, but it happens randomly. People's mutant potential is awakened because of circumstances or because of, and so new types are a lot like that. And we'll find that the new type idea is characterized by a new way of thinking. A penchant for 3D thinking as opposed to 2D thinking, which will be a big component of space warfare. Mm -hmm. And then we'll also touch on implicit and explicit psychic powers, both like extrasensory perception, extrasensory communication, and like literal telekinesis in some ways. Yeah. So, so Ben, like the, the way I think it might first show up is um, pilots that have greater intuition, like they can dodge things that normally shouldn't be dodged or have some kind of battlefield awareness, like being able to see through the fog of war. But where it becomes a real significant issue is like when a soldier can feel what an enemy soldier's feeling, mm. like when they kill them. <laughs> Interesting. And and I think a lot of uh, military training is actually kind of like deprogramming people's natural empathy. And, you know, yeah. you have a lot of the, the kind of villainization or dehumanization of, of the people you're fighting to try to get around that. But there, there are some studies that show or, or kind of like accounts that say that, you know, during the world wars and stuff like that, a lot of soldiers weren't actually firing at each other. They had kind of mm -hmm. come up with these informal truces where they would just shoot over each other's heads. And I guess like if both sides are doing that and you can kind of communicate that to one another, then you can just be safe on the line there. <laughs> oh, Plus, wow. I'd heard of the, the Christmas Day truce, but I, I didn't know that was like a common occurrence. That's wild. Yeah, so supposedly... The U.S. military did research on that, you know, in their training post-World War II, there was a lot of emphasis on trying to, like, stop that from happening, make people mm. more effective at wanting to to kill their, their enemies. Yeah, uh, there's a book called On Killing. It's like the psychology of warfare. Prior to World War II, um, targets that soldiers tested on in boot camp were just round bullseyes. And then uh, they changed it to human-shaped targets to help desensitize mm -hmm. uh, soldiers to be able to fire, aim and fire at another human being. Ugh. So what I was going to add to this was that, um, gosh, I keep going back to this Nazi thing. In, in addition <laughs> to like making these certain labels oriented around belief irrelevant, like if, if you're a new type. Man, that really resonates with me because I feel like that's kind of one of humanity's biggest problems, right? If we tie our identity to a belief, man, we can't change that. Like mm -hmm. if I believe like man, capitalism, being a Republican, being an ev evangelical, like that is the right way. Well, you have a belief, but there's also values that you subscribe to that reinforce that. Well, if we could tie our identity to a value, well, now we can have a conversation and there's room to get to the same end without one specific mean. If we both value self-determination, maybe capitalism isn't the only way to reach self-determination. Anyway, I feel like that's kind of a part of this. Well, it's almost like when I'm having a conversation with someone, if we're all speaking in vague terms, one, I feel like we don't get to a productive point of discussion, but we also are more 
likely to offend one another. Because if I say like Christianity is bad, well, then if I'm talking to a Christian, they're going to be offended. But if I was much more specific Mm -hmm. and talked about the values I've observed Mm. in some Christians personally, then they wouldn't have to be offended because I'm not talking about them. And they might be more receptive to what, and like, you know, the same thing if someone was talking about atheism, uh, in general and said like atheists are violent, I would get offended. But if they talked about like specific instances of atheist violence they had observed, I would be more prone to have that conversation. Yeah, I guess you can have kind of tribalism around your identity or your ideology or an ideology that you subscribe to can get corrupted and kind of leave behind its initial values but if you stay focused on the the values themselves, then as that thing becomes corrupted, you should be aware that it no longer matches the values you, you stand for, right? Excellently put and exceedingly relevant to the series we're going to explore. Brilliant, Ben. Oh <laughs> awesome. Um, I, I always love a good Alex compliment. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason why I'm here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I, oh, there's one thing I wanted to read, but before I read that thing, I wondered if Brian wanted to talk about his theory of the zombie family, or if we wanted to leave that for the next episode. Well, this could be related to what is it that Tamino brings to the table? You know, Tamino's growing up in post-World War II Japan. Mm -hmm. It's it's a time of, culture shock, right? Japan leading up to World War II, they weren't really a military di- dictatorship. That's something that occurred in a really short period of time, about the span of 20 years. A bunch of military factions emerged and took over, and then all of Japan gets indoctrinated with this militant ideology uh, that's really destructive. And thankfully, like that manifestation of Japan gets defeated. And then there's this well, now what? Like, we had this ideology, it was broken, where are we now? This is like the reconstruction period, right? And I can imagine someone like Tamino, you're Japanese, you grew up in Japan, you love Japan, but you're just coming off of the heels of some very horrible things having happened, right? I'm sure Germany went through the same thing. And how do you make sense of this? How do you reconcile this? Well, you start to learn, well, how did it happen, right? So like Japan was going through this period of modernization, A lot of really exciting things were happening, like new music and art influences and being fused with traditional styles. And then same thing in politics, Uh, different ideas of sociology and politics were coming in and like, wow, what are we going to do with this? Uh, But then like there's an old guard that has difficulty with adapting to change, especially if change is happening too fast, right? And that can catch on really quickly and easily, which is what happened. A bunch of these military factions emerge with different ideas about how things should be. None of them agreed, but they all shared this common feeling like, well, it's the West's fault. Right? We're in an economic depression because of Western investors and bankers were unregulated and crashed the economy. Or we were the victors in this like Chinese conflict and this Russian conflict, and we were a part of the League of Nations, but we got publicly shamed on the world stage. Uh, so that pisses us off. And we need to get everyone together, even though we've got these different ideas about what kind of restoration we need or how we want to manifest our hate. <laughs> so the, the, this momentum gets started. And then uh, how this is relevant to Gundam is that uh, there's a movement and it gets taken over. And then you've got all these Zabi children who are the children of the sovereign, 
who is now in, in control of Xeon, but he doesn't have control of them and they're all doing their own thing. And what it is they do is very similar to what a lot of these factions were doing leading up to World War II. So just looking at our characters, the Zabi, um, we have Giran Zabi, who from my perspective looks a lot like the Kodoha military faction, which translates to the Imperial Way faction. They were very fixated on Imperial expansion, modernization of the military, not necessarily modernization of the culture though. Mm. They were very, very opposed to the Soviet Union. They had their sights on the Manchurian Peninsula. Uh, so this is very much Giran Zabi. Like, I hate the Federation. We're gonna... <laughs> amp up our military, opposed mm -hmm. to anything Federation, right? Then we've got this big gorilla guy, Dozel Zabi. He's very much like the Toseha military faction leading up to World War II. Uh, they're called the control faction. Uh, the Toseha, like Dozel, like did not have a taste for politics. It seemed like politics is just another manifestation of Western decadence or another aspect of the Federation. Uh, but they did look very fondly on um, enhancing various industries like the financial sector, administrative sectors, manufacturing, and then also strong national defense. Um, Sastro uh, looks very much like the Gen Yoshad, the Dark Ocean Society, kind of a sexy name. Uh, Kaecilia, who's just a psychopath that you'll see later. She looks very much like the Black Dragon Society. Like So those last two, Dark Ocean and Black Dragon, politically, if they didn't like something someone was doing, they would just kill them. They would send someone into the Imperial diet with a samurai sword and kill them or put a bomb in their car. So just having, um, you know, the, the perspective of like someone coming into this cold, I feel like that, you know, it's a lot because it's like a new character I haven't heard of. And then this yeah. thing from Japanese history, I haven't heard of. Absolutely. And, and the first episode will introduce us to all of them. Yeah. It seems really cool. I just like, can't <laughs> follow it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I want to read this little thing, just the first page of the uh, introduction to Universal Century. The sense of distance between Earth and the moon. The Apollo program, implemented by American National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, from uh, 1961 to 1972, carried out humanity's first mission to the moon, the Apollo spacecraft, which made a landmark achievement in the history of humanity's space endeavors, traveled from Earth to the moon, a journey of about 380,000 kilometers in just over 100 hours. On a smaller scale, but still speaking of a sense of time, Japanese express messengers in the Edo period, uh, or is it Edo? Edo, yeah, yeah, yeah. Edo, yeah, okay. Edo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we do always say Edo in English, but yeah. it's Edo. <laughs> Japanese express messengers in the Edo period could travel from Edo to Kyoto in merely three or four days. Likewise, the famous tale of Shushingura uh, recounts how the news of an Eiko lord committing seppuku was delivered from Edo to Eiko, the southwestern part of present-day Hyojo prefecture, within five days by men carrying a palanquin. In modern times, it is said that Earth has been getting gradually smaller thanks to the technologies developed throughout the years, such as steam trains, automobiles, fast ships, high-speed railways, and even airplanes. But it is surprising that such closeness can be felt even in the sense of distance between Earth and the moon. In the Universal Century era, which is what we'll be discussing, the distance from the Earth to a space colony might feel even smaller, especially considering the massive advantages in technology. 
Despite the short distance, there is a vast chasm between the hearts of those who live on Earth and those who have immigrated to space. This is the ambiance of the Universal Century. The new era known as the Universal Century is abbreviated as UC. So in UC1, the new era begins with the start of immigration. In UC40, 40% of the total human population has immigrated to space. The area of humanity's influence, enlarged by its, this immigration, becomes known as the Earth Sphere. More than half a century has passed since countless people began moving from Earth to the man-made habitat known as space colonies. During this time, the number of space colonies housing these immigrants has steadily increased, and the colonies have grouped together into sides that operate with some degree of autonomy. However, much of the political framework remains under the control of the Earth Federation government, which is the basis for the sovereignty claimed by those living on Earth. It can't be denied that this has given the people of Earth a certain sense of superiority over those living in space. Without sovereignty, the people of space have remained continually vulnerable to economic demands and governmental oppression from the Earth's side. Perhaps it was inevitable that this one-sided state of affairs would create a variety of overt and covert frictions between the parties and bring about a power that would attempt to resolve the situation. This is the era in which the man Zeon Zoom Daikun appeared. Oh, that's good. Just a, as an exercise, and, and maybe it'll be useful somewhere in the podcast. I don't know. I want to try to like summarize what I've learned today. And you guys Ooh. can correct me if I'm wrong. And actually, the, the first question before I do this. So what is the universal century? It's the time signature that uh, comes after A.D., yeah, this is the era that ushers in the uh, the space colonies. Um, and uh, just so you guys know, I hope this doesn't seem rude, but I haven't done any research or anything. I'm just going into this super blind. So uh, just as a heads up. I think that's perfect. Okay, so here here goes my, my summary attempt. Mm. Mobile Suit Gundam was an anime that started in the 70s by this guy, Tomohiko? Tomino. Tomino. Okay, so he made this anime mobile suit Gundam in the 70s. We're going to be watching a show called Gundam Origins that was more recently produced, but it's kind of the prequel to that whole universe of shows. And this is set in this universal century, this new era where humans are colonizing space. It's a hard sci-fi story about how these mobile suits were originally made, how they affected the world and warfare. And there are people living on Earth known as Earthnoids. And uh, the government of Earth is this thing called the Federation. And then we have space noids out in space who are kind of more vulnerable. In some ways, they're the underdogs. But there's this guy, Zeon, who is, is he a space noid? Zeon Zoom Daikun, yes. Okay, Zeon Zoom Daikun, who's kind of like this new leader, this prophetic dude. And there's also starting to be this new type of person literally, I guess, called the, the new types for these like mutants that have subtle powers where maybe you wouldn't even realize that they are a new type until they do something that's like just out the scope of what others seem to be able to do. Hmm. Yes. Any, uh, any big points I'm missing? Pretty good. No, that's really awesome, actually. <laughs> well <laughs> done. 
I learned some shit today. <laughs> Stole that from Reply All. Some of them actually just got canceled. Well, not maybe not canceled, quit. It was a whole scandal, shocked the, mm-hmm. the podcast world. But uh, I guess they in Radiolab do this as a technique where they'll have one person really learn the story, tell the other person the story, and then they'll have that other person ask questions and then sometimes try to summarize things back. Oh, that's really smart. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I don't think any of us are going to get canceled over this. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of space Nazi talk. <laughs> Brian, did you have any final thoughts to leave us with? Or are we just excited to get to it next week? I'm ready to do this. Awesome. We, do we have a guest lined up for next week? John Goodman goes by the name Subcarrier online, does a lot of EDM stuff, and uh, has had various political views. This is someone you reached out to, Brian? Well, this was um, my cousin, uh, who I was pen pals with in high school during our punk rock days. I lost touch with him and then reconnected recently when I started getting more politically aware and starting to speak out on certain issues. And then we connected on that. So next week, uh, tune in for our coverage of episode one of Gundam The Origin. All right. Pen. Pen. Pals. Haro! Haro!